Hey there, welcome or welcome back to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where I chat with interesting people who have faced down the uncomfortable. We talk through their stories, but also we delve into the strategies that they've used for helping them get uncomfortable and also have a bit of a chat about what they've learnt from that experience. Today's guest is Trevor Baum. Now, Trevor, you'll notice, doesn't have the usual Kiwi accent of my of uh, the guests that I usually have on the podcast, but he's not too hard to understand as well. Trevor, in his own words, was a guy that that had it all, um, and then through a series of events, his life completely changed. He came to a crossroads, and when he got to this crossroads, he could either choose to go back on with a a conventional life, living in a conventional way, or he could take the path of outlandish adventure. So, because he's obviously on this podcast, you can probably pick which one he chose. Um, Trevor sat down and came up with his own year to live project. So he thought, if I only had a year to live, what would I do that would this year that would allow me to be at peace? So today's conversation, we, we talk around what it was that he did do and what he learned from it. So today's conversation is a little bit about finding yourself, a bit about understanding yourself, about being present, and about having adventures. I had a really, really great time talking with Traver. Uh, he tells a fantastic story as well. Uh, just a short word of warning, if you are listening to this conversation and the kids are uh, kids around, there are a couple of swear words in it. Um, I think it adds to the conversation, so I haven't taken them out. Um, but yeah, just might, might want to keep an ear out for that. So thank you guys so much for uh, for tuning in to support the show today. If you want to support the show in other ways, uh, the easiest way to do it is to subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app so that you get the show coming into your ears every week. Uh, leave a review on your favorite podcast app um, or share it out on, on social media and or have a chat with your mates about it. It's great to, to get new listeners and to uh, yeah see, see new people downloading the podcast. Um, and I want to just say say hi to all the listeners over in the Isle of Man. Uh, I noticed there's been a, a few downloads from over there recently. So hey guys, uh, sing out, get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you and who you are and how uh, how you're enjoying the show. You can also support the show on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash uncomfortable is okay. I load up all of my notes that I write about the show there. But enough of a ramble to start with. Thanks guys for tuning in to get uncomfortable with Trevor and I today.
welcome to the Uncomfortable is Okay podcast, man. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, beautiful. Um, Trevor, obviously people picking up, that's not a Kiwi accent. Um, can, you, <laughs> can you give me and the listeners a little bit of background about yourself, mate? Um, where, where are you from? Where did you, where did you grow up? Like, were there any sure. kind of big, really formative experiences in your, in your childhood that have shaped you as a person? Yeah, I have an odd accent. I am from the East Coast of the U.S., from Connecticut, which is a small state outside of New York. And uh, I lived there for the vast majority of my upbringing, with the exception of a five-year stint that I spent uh, in Tokyo. My dad worked for IBM, and so we got shipped over there for five years and then back to Connecticut. And then since then, you know, as soon as I hit uh, hit first year out of college, I was off the East Coast and I've lived in California ever since. And now I'm in the midst of kind of relocating to somewhere I'm not sure where exactly that is yet, but um, I'm in search of a new home. Awesome. So if people have like a, a spare a spare bed or something, then you'd be you'd be open <laughs> to that. <laughs> I am actually talking to you from Brooklyn, New York, where uh, I was meeting with um, a friend of mine that I met actually uh, another TED speaker that was in the same conference I was, and he said, "Come on out for the day." I'm leaving for the week. You can stay in my apartment when you get done. And so, yeah, I, and I came from another couch surfing experience where I've been for a couple of months where I'm a, I'm a professional squatter at this point. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm wide open for beds. Thanks. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I appreciate so if, it. If anyone is listening and uh, wants to host Trevor, <laughs> then uh, yeah. get, get in touch. <laughs> Yeah, I've got good stories. I'm an acupuncturist. I can cook. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice, man. Um, I, I just want to, I'm going to jump back to your childhood there a little sure. bit, mate. Um, so the, the five years that you spent in, in Tokyo, uh, mm-hmm. how old were you at the time? It was age 10 through 15. Okay. So pretty formative years. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of awkward years in, in growing up as well. Like, do you remember how you, how you felt moving to Japan? You know, I was excited for it at that age, Chris. Like to me, it was more of an adventure. I think I was naive enough to not really understand that um, it meant leaving all my friends at home. It meant leaving my little first fifth grade girlfriend. Uh, it was, you know, so I was really excited. And being there, though, was extremely eye-opening because if you can't see, I have a shaved head now, but I was a little toe-headed, blonde like uber white kid. And so I stuck out there like a sore thumb. Like people would come up and touch my hair, or ask if they could touch my hair. Uh, I was, I was an anomaly in that country. So it was a really unique experience to even at that young age, uh, experience racism or experience d- discrimination. You know, people weren't that happy with me being there. And then on the flip side, um, kind of being this, you know, unique person that people want to come talk to and and practice English with or touch. So it was a real duality that I didn't really understand until much later on, to be honest. Mm. How, how has that shaped you and your interactions with people these days, like going through that experience? Well, definitely, you know, I went from a suburban, uh, mostly white uh, school system to an international school that had over 90 countries represented um, in, you know, in a day, like that transition happened. So I went from hanging out with other little Connecticut kids 
to uh, having a best friend from Korea, one from India, one from Pakistan, one from Thailand. Uh, it, it truly internationalized me overnight and made me uh, far more open and feel really, really comfortable just about anywhere in the world. So this was a, a, a magical experience, even though, you know, in, in hindsight, it, there were some challenges to it. Yeah, that's that's very cool. And often a transition that people don't talk about is going back home after you've had yeah. that experience, like going yeah. from that kind of almost being sort of an outsider in, in, in that community, although you probably have integrated a bit over the over the five years that you're there and being yeah. kind of in a really international sort of area. And then coming back, did you go back into your into your old community? Yeah, we actually went back into the exact same house. So I went back to the same uh, the high school that was you know in the continuum of the school system, and uh, I didn't do that well with it. I didn't know again until you know hindsight, much years, much much later. But what was really hard was in Tokyo, at any age, I could literally walk out my front door hop on a subway and be anywhere within three hours uh, and back by by night. And that was the freedom I had. I could just tell my mom, like, hey, I'm going to the city over to go skateboarding. I'm going two cities away to hang out with a friend that lives there. And I had complete access to that entire city through their public transportation, which is amazing. Mm. And then came back to Connecticut and I can't drive yet. So I can't even leave the house really without my mom's permission or my, or my mom driving me or my dad driving me. Uh, so it was really hard. I went from, you know, um, cosmopolitan living of restaurants and, you know, quite honestly, at the, even at that age in Tokyo, we could drink. So I was going to bars as like a 14 year old and then came back to, you know, uh, there's nothing to do this weekend but play in the yard. And so I had a lot of anger coming back. I actually wished that we had stayed or if I was a couple years older, what some kids do is actually had a boarding school attached to our school where people could stay and finish out their last year and live with a host family. But I couldn't. And so, yeah, it was um, it was a hard transition back. I think I just shut down a lot, to be honest. After after school, mate, uh, where did you where did you go after that? After high school, after high school. Yeah. I went to uh, I went to college in Boston, and then you know sort of followed this the normal track. I went to Boston College, played water polo for the school, swam for the school, and then um, decided to go to the West Coast because I just knew like I think coming from Japan, um, I needed something more than small town Connecticut, and I loved surf culture. I loved like the skateboard culture. I loved. You know, growing up, all we, we didn't have the internet, so we just had magazines of what was happening in California. And it seemed like this mythical place where you could go to the beach, you could surf, um, people were more laid back, people were happier. And so uh, I took off, I think at 22, and just drove across country and, and didn't look back. And this is the first time I've actually lived on the East Coast, and I'm 41 years old. And I just, I'm not, you know, I said I don't even have a home, I was kind of squatting here. But it's been a unique experience to come back as an adult as well. Yeah. What's, uh, what's changed since you left the first time? Hmm. That is a great question. Um, I have, obviously. And my family's not here or my family's not in, in the small town. So when I do come home, I now come to New York City. 
as opposed to going to Connecticut. Uh, I think for everybody going back to their hometown after leaving is a, it's almost like a rite of passage or, a, you know, it's a journey in itself to, to touch places that were so influential in your life that you, that you've left. Um, it's actually been very good for me, Chris. You know, I think when I left, I was, I didn't want to be here. I was, you know, I didn't want to see my family. I wanted to get as far away as possible and, and kind of shun this East coast life. And uniquely enough, I've, I've landed here and have had to sort through those feelings of why did I want to get out of here so badly? And what was it about this place that was, you know, triggering me all those years ago? And why is it different now, uh, as an adult? Mm. Have you figured out what was triggering you all those years ago? You know, I think it was uh, a need for adventure that it seems so homogeneous here and that, you know, I, I have said to people, like, there's no mountains here the way there are on the West Coast of the U.S. There's an ocean here, but you can't really get in it. You know, I wanted to chew on life. I wanted to surf waves that I thought would kill me. I wanted to get into, you know, climb big mountains. I wanted to experience the adventure of the West Coast or even what I had thought is like the romanticized version of the adventure of the West Coast. And now that I've come back a little bit older and after a, a significant journey that filled in my insides and made me more, far more comfortable in my own skin, it doesn't really matter where I am in the world. I'm, I'm happy with who I am. And so I also think I was just running and chasing and, you know, doing what young is like, go West, young man is a common U.S. phrase. And it's kind of like, go seek your adventure, go find out who you are. And it, it, that's, that was a 20 year adventure. Mm, that's very cool. And I've, I've had a few conversations actually recently about that kind of that need for adventure and that need to kind of get out there and, and challenge ourselves and kind of yeah. almost the, the call to, to nature with it as well yeah. is that we want to yeah. kind of pit ourselves against the, against the surf, against the mountains, against, uh, kind of all of the, all of the rugged self, uh, stuff and kind of explore ourselves within that context. Yeah, definitely. Especially for men. Um, I can't speak to the experience of being a woman, but I know as a guy, like those were my strongest years and I, I wanted tests. I wanted, I wanted to get my ass kicked by life and see, see how I measured up. So it didn't seem like that was possible here on the East coast. What, what was asked of me here was to throw a suit and tie on and go ride a subway and sit in a cubicle. And I thought I would just die or that to me was death you know like a soul death i wanted to get out on the west coast where it was sunny and people were happy and you know there was there was shit going on mm, mm. yeah i in the podcast that i did last week actually uh, was a, a with a dude called clive neeson who is one of the like he kind of documented sort of uh the evolution of uh, adventure sports in new zealand and oh awesome kind of it, it, it's a wicked uh, wicked movie so people should <laughs> yeah, check I out bet. last paradise it's amazing <laughs> um but he kind of likened that sort of that cubicle suit lifestyle to him it was like living as a as a battery hen that you're put in this cage your job is just to to produce yeah. and you have just no freedom with it yeah, it's almost like the scene out of the Matrix. It's like, you know, at 26 years old, you're, you're working 12, 14 hours a day and you don't see sunlight and you live to just get drunk on the weekends. And, you know, it's, it's not real life or it didn't seem like real life to me. It was just like that. You're just a hamster in the wheel. 
And um, the options on the West Coast just felt uh, like there were more. Yeah. A, I don't know. You know, I was an idiot at that age. I didn't know what I was doing. I just got in the car and, and you know, took a left and kept driving. Uh, but something was calling me to get out there and, and live that life. Yeah. Mate, I don't think you're uh, you're unique in the world of males at, uh, in their mid-20s. I'm pretty sure I was an idiot at that age as well. And, like, if I, if I look back in 10 years' time, um, I might think that I'm an idiot now as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'll be, yeah. These we're, are subjective facts. Yeah, objective facts. Yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll see. Um, <laughs> what, did, what did you find when you got uh, out to the West Coast? Was it everything that you dreamed of? Um, it, it was. Uh, I wasn't, you know, and I think that is a hard pill to swallow is that I brought a lot of the East Coast with me. You know, at 25, I wanted to be a millionaire and a CEO of a company and I wanted to work my ass off and I wanted to get married and have kids and uh, grow up way faster than I could have and should have. So while the opportunity was there, it's still like I limited myself and it wasn't until um, later on that, uh, that I, I kind of forced myself to just say, uh, I'm following someone else's path here, even though I'm on the West Coast. I'm following that East Coast structure of, you know, yeah, you know, I, my first job, Chris, or like first real job at 25 was a bodyguard. And so people are like, oh my God, that must have been fascinating. Yeah, it was private jets. It was private yachts. It was, you know, celebrities. It was award shows. And it was sometimes 60, 70 hours a week of sitting in a tiny room looking at cameras on someone's house. And so I had this feel like, oh, I'm doing this really cool, unique thing. Like, yeah, but for months and months on end, my job was to sit from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. in some billionaire's house who's not even there and make sure that no one breaks in and steals his art, which I might as well be sitting in a cubicle being, in a, being a battery. So mm. I still – and I, I chased that of like, well, it's in name, it's exciting and in, in, in experience, it's really not, except for very, very rarely when we did get to do some cool stuff. But um, I think I still had my own limitations and needed to fill in my core of who I was and have an understanding of life that, man, it's it, that I had, I think I had to understand what hindsight was, to be honest. You know, like we all look back and say, oh, if, if I could do high school again, I would have, you know, I would have dated the prom queen. Or, you know, if I could have done my 20s again, all I would have done was move to South America and surf and seek even more adventure and more adventure. But um, I think you need to actually live a bit of your life, or, or I did, and then look back and say, oh, wow, I wish I had then. And so now I have an opportunity now. I'm going to do that, which I wish I had done in the past, because I know at 50, I'm going to look back at 40 and go, man. Should have, should have gotten after it while I still had all my health and my strength and, you know, some money in my pocket and the wisdom I had. And then at 60, I'll probably look back at 50. So, so I made a point when I turned 40 and was like, uh, fuck it. Um, we'll talk about in a minute. Like I had a big transition and in that transition, I had two ways to go. One was a very conventional path. The other was outlandish wildness adventure. And I remember sitting down and thinking, what we, what will you do? At, what will you look back on at fifty and go? Thank fucking God, man. Good for you for doing that. It might have made no sense. It might have gotten me killed. It might have gotten me broke. But good for you for doing it. 
uh, I may have needed a couple years of, of not doing it and suffering through that to look back and have that experience. Yeah, man. I, I agree that with you. that. Yeah. I, I think with, with that, uh, from talking to people, I think most people do that. They look back and they're like, man, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd had these adventures. Yeah. But then not many people actually take action at the time that they're doing that reflection and, and looking at that and saying, Hey, why the fuck can't I do this now and, and exactly. get on there and get into it? And I think exactly. that's, that's one of the, that's one of the things with this podcast as well is, is trying to, I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable to go out and do, go adventuring and, and do that hard stuff, especially when we kind of perceive that we're, we're a little bit older. We have a few more responsibilities. We feel like, right. Hey, we should, we should be conforming to what society tells us, tells us to right. do. Um, yeah. And I think it's, yeah, it, it, it's challenging with that. And hopefully, I mean, talking to, talking to guys like you and, and having you tell your story kind of inspires some people to say, actually, fuck it. I'm going to go and go and do this thing that I've been wanting to do for a while. That feels a little bit uncomfortable for me. 110%. I cannot tell you how many people after the last two and a half years of my life have said, I wish I could do what you do. And I look them right in the eye and say, you can. And then take all of your butts and just make them irrelevant. Yeah. Like, How do they I, I want to move to, it's, they, they can't. They just say, well, like, you know, well, well, I can't. Well, I have this. Well, I have this. And it's, it's bullshit. It's complete and utter bullshit. And I'm not advocating that anybody walk out on their family or leave their kids or walk out on their responsibilities but this is, and then today's world, if you have a laptop and a cell phone, you can probably make a living anywhere in the world. You know, most people can. You know, and I have people say, well, I have kids in really good schools. If they weren't in those really good schools, I'd move the whole family to Costa Rica. I'm like, man, do you really think that your kids are going to look back in 20 years from now and say, thank God we didn't live in Costa Rica for, the, for those five years and surf and play in the jungle and learn about life and meet people internationally. But I was in a really great school in upstate New Jersey, you know, in suburbia. I got to wear a blazer and a tie, right? But to them, it's like, I can't. They're in the, good, they're in the program, right? Like, I'm in the program is really what they're saying. I've put so much time and energy into following mainstream society that if I pull out of it now, I have to admit that maybe that time and energy I put into it was a waste. But it's not because it got you to where you got and, and rather you pull out now than 20 years from now. But man, it is like I've sit with people day in and day out, Chris, and say that excuse is bullshit. Mm. It's just fear. It's just fear. And that's what you have to be willing to fear and is exactly what your podcast is. Fear and discomfort. You know, literally fear and discomfort. I've probably slept in 35, 45 different beds in the last year and a half. And have all of them been comfortable? No. Have I slept on floors? Yes. Have I slept in my truck? Yes. Have I slept in the dirt? Yes. Have I, will I look back on this time period and do I look back on the last two and a half years and go, holy fuck, that was awesome? Yes, I do. Is this how I want to live in my 60s and 70s? No, sir. Are, are nice beds super comfortable and do they make me feel great? Yes, they do. I love them. Warm showers, I love them. But they're not the, – they're not uh, – the, I'd rather appreciate them 
and have wildness in my life than think of them as the norm and have no wildness and no adventure. Mm, right? Like they're not a big enough price to say, okay, you know what? I'll go work in a cubicle or I'll be unhappy in my job and I won't even pursue the other options. Yeah. If people can, everybody listening, you can change your life in a second because it happened. What happens to people and it happened to me is your life can get changed in a second and then you got no choice, right? Then it becomes a really easy decision and, and you don't want that to happen. If it happens, it's either way, it's a blessing, but you can get up at any point and say, today was the last day. Change happens in an instant, yeah. an instant. Yeah, mate. I, I think this is a great place to kind of go in and, and talk about that. And as sure. I was saying uh, initially, I, I first uh, came across you on the Man Talks podcast, um, which is a mm-hmm. great podcast. People should check great it out. Great podcast. Um, yep. And I was like, man, this is a this is an amazing amazing story. Um, so it was it was kind of you were chatting with Connor around uh, the, the Year to Live project that that you did. Yeah. Can yeah. you like? Um, I'd love you to kind of talk us through some of that. But can you tell us about the events that that happened that kind of led up to that that point where you made, where you kind of made that pivot, and when you said like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and do this." Sure. So I, I like to frame this, Chris, by saying uh, I was the guy who had it all. I really was. I lived in Santa Barbara, California, which, if you don't know, is this exclusive part of Central California. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I was married to an ex-model. My business was I owned a gym where I would show up in shorts and sandals and, and, you know, inspire people to get in shape. And I could say, fuck, it work whenever I wanted. I could come and go. We made pretty good money. Um, I had a kid on the way. My life was set. I had a dog. I had a house. Like, My life was, I was the guy who had it all. Uh, And then my ex-wife and I, a little foreshadowing, we lost a pregnancy, which happens. A couple months later, uh, we sorted through some challenges of that situation, of the miscarriage. And I thought we were all back to everything was good. And we were going to start trying again. And, you know, the I have it all would continue. And I, I sat at breakfast with her one morning after the holidays, after our anniversary, after Christmas. And I asked, what are you going to do for today? Or what are you going to do for today? And she literally looked right across the breakfast table at me and said, I am moving to LA today. I'm leaving you. I don't want to be married any longer. I will be gone within the hour. And literally she got up and started packing. I went in the other room and started throwing up. I was like, holy fuck, what just happened to my life? We were in bed together playing with the dog 35 minutes ago. What is happening? And so I had a feeling, just this tiny, tiny little inkling that, okay, big change is on the way. And I moved in with my business partner, who was a, a college water polo teammate of mine from BC. And because uh, I couldn't live in my house, I couldn't feed myself. Like he was making me breakfast and cooking for me. And we sat down within a day or two at breakfast and he said, you know what? I got to be honest with you. Uh, I, I don't think this business is right for you either. I think you and I should consider going our separate ways as well. And so in 48 hours, um, everything that I went from being the guy that had it all to holy fuck, I have nothing. 
I've lost these two massive pillars of my identity. One being married to my ex and two being the owner of this very community oriented um, fitness facility in the town. And so I was left with this massive, massive opening, right? Like all of a sudden I had more fucking time than I knew what to do with. I wasn't going to be raising a kid. I wasn't in a relationship and I really wasn't going to be going to work. Um, I decided at that point that one of the smartest things I could do to save my own life was to quit drinking completely and use the pain of this experience for something greater. I had this tiny little whisper that was like, guess what? You're in for a fucking ride. Like nothing you've ever experienced before in your life. If you drink your way through this, you won't learn a thing. If you get high your way through this, you won't learn a thing. If you fuck your way through this, you won't learn a thing. So eliminate everything that could possibly become a distraction and sit in the middle of the most horrific pain you've ever known. Awesome, right? Like, yeah, let's mm. let's have a really a light, fluffy podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did so, you like? How did you kind of come to say, "Hey, I'm I'm just going to sit with this pain. I'm not going to use anything to distract me." Like, was that just intuitive to you, or was that something that you had to do some really deep thinking on? It was really intuitive. I don't know where it came from. You know, I think I quit drinking because I, I had. Like randomly read a, a article the week before that like guys in my age bracket were the highest rate of suicide. And I remember reading the article and be like, why the fuck would guys in my age be killing themselves? And then a week later, woke up divorced, you know, in a in a, a partnership split and going, oh wow, I can I can see being twelve beers from now putting a bullet in my head, literally. Mm-hmm. So once that got out of the way, um, I just had this feeling, Chris, and I don't know how to explain it that. There's, I wanted it to be as awful as it possibly could so that I could learn everything that I could possibly learn. Like clean the slate, you know, like wipe the slate clean. Like let's get to the shit of it. Let's get as hardcore awful as it can be so that I never, ever have to do this again. I thought maybe if I missed a lesson, you know, it's going to come back around and bite me in the ass again. Uh, and I had this idea that the pain would be transformative. It would, it would help me get to a place in my life that I'd never gotten before. And I'd kind of always wanted to, right? Like I alluded to looking back on my twenties, looking back on my early thirties and thinking, huh, I could have done that differently if I wasn't afraid, right? I could have pushed that envelope. I could have disappeared to South America with a surfboard and just wandered for two or two or five years. I could have, could have, could have. What held me back? Fear. Fear of what? Fear of pain. Fear of change. Okay, if I can handle this and I can take this pain on was a thought, I'll never be afraid of anything again. Like, what's the what's the universe going to do to me? It took a uh, it took my kid, it took my wife, it took my job, like metaphorically, you know. What else you got? At this point, I'm free to travel the earth and do whatever I want. So I, I you know I don't want that to sound psychopathic. Uh, I fell apart. Like, I'll be honest with you guys. Like, I fell the fuck apart and I went to therapy and I went to men's groups and I went to seminars on relationship and I, and I lived on a couch where I just could not get off of it for months at a time. I was, you know, borderline suicidal a lot. It was not an easy experience to go through. But I look back on it now as it was a crucible. 
And it was the most important transition period of my life. So to answer your initial question, with this amount of time and space and now selling my half of the business to my partner, I also had some income that was going to be coming in. I started asking myself the question, what could I do with this window? Because I knew at some point I wanted to get back in a relationship. I actually want to get remarried. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to have another business. I wanted to have another home. I wanted to have another dog. Before that happened, let me look at this, you know, for lack, I don't know if this is secretity a word, like the sacredness of this space and what can I do with it? And one side of my friends or people around me were like, you own a gym of 300 people, pick one of the girls, get, get married, get her pregnant, get back on it, go open another gym in the next town. You're really good at this. Like, Go just recreate the life that you lost. You can be back on your feet in six months. You're good. Go for it. Do it. But I had this nagging voice that said, no, 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 no. I will look back at 50 and say, God damn you for not doing something. God damn you for not taking that opening because that opening is now gone. And now I'm just another one of those guys that looks back and goes, fuck, I wish I could have or I wish I did. As opposed to, holy fuck, I can't believe I did that thing. And so playing with that energy, man, like playing with that thought process got really interesting. And a couple of things happened at the same time. I read the book. Um, actually, I didn't read the book. I'm sorry. I was, I was going to Los Angeles to a meditation place called Against the Stream because I was also into meditation and knew I had to meditate to survive this process. Long story short, I went to the against the stream, went to the bathroom after a talk, came out of the bathroom, looked up on their cork board of like recent events and saw this thing called the Year to Live program. I thought, huh, that sounds really interesting. Like I kind of feel like I'm dying myself. What is this? And so I went home and Googled it and found out that it was uh, a 12-month program based off of this guy's book, Stefan Levine, I think that's how you pronounce his name, called the Year to Live and he gives 12 months of like internal meditations for people who have a chronic illness or for people who are going to pass away. So how do you make right with yourself, right? Like if, if a cancer diagnosis comes down the pipe, how do you get yourself right so that on that last day you die taking a full breath and you go, oh yeah, I'm good. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to, I'm ready to move on here as opposed to taking a shallow, weak breath going, God, don't let me go. I still have to make that phone call. I still have to, and I'm still not at peace. So how do you find peace? Um, <clears throat> so that was a, that thought in my head. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Hmm. Ha, 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 ha. Maybe I'll take their program. But I didn't want to stay in LA. I didn't want to be around my ex. I didn't want to stay in Santa Barbara. I wanted to get the fuck out of Dodge for my own sanity. And around this time, um, I was trying to get onto, I, uh, I gave a speech about pain at my gym and a woman in the audience, I hope everyone's following along, was uh, a TED promoter for, you know, the TED Talks. And she came up after me and said, hey, I really want to get you on a TED stage. I think you're an amazing speaker and this talk about pain is important. I said, I am like as depressed as a human can be. I'm living on ice cream and like crying on my bathroom floor. I really don't want to be on a stage, but thank you. And she called me a couple months later and said, hey, I have an opening for TED LA, TED Los Angeles. 
what do you think about giving your pain talk at TED LA? Here's the asterisk by this question. They want you to do a six-month social or six-week social experiment. So you need to take 20 people who are in pain, work them through this process that you've kind of come up with of like meditation, journaling, uh, forgiveness, whatever it may be, and then like empiricalize it. So at the end of the six weeks, to ha- like measure their pain before and after. And the talk will really be presenting those findings. I thought, okay, again, I can't be responsible for 20 people because on any given moment of any given day, I'm either like flat backed on the couch crying still or hyper or I'm, I'm a mess, man. Like my marriage just fell apart. Like my whole life is just falling apart. I can't, I can't, I can't be around other people. I'm sorry. So I turned, I told her that hung up the phone and again, had this like, I don't know, a whisper in my ear or a download or an insight that said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take all of next year. You're going to live the entire 12 months as if you were dying. You're going to do your own year to live program. And that's going to be your social experiment. It's just you. So if you have a shit day and you need to just go, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going flat back on the couch today, that's okay. And you're going to actually make it so that instead of getting to the end of your life and finding peace, you're going to find peace at 40, like a halfway mark. I hoped that I was going to get to 80. And it, it just made sense, Chris. Like, why are we waiting until the end of our lives to apologize to people, to tell people that we love them? To close all of those like loops in our life, right? Like to, to close the circles that are open that are kind of costing us energy. And I had also wanted to answer the question of like, what role did I play in my marriage ending? You know, I smoked a lot of dope in my marriage. Like I wasn't okay. I wasn't happy. I have, you know, some family of origin stuff that needed to get talked about. Like I hadn't talked to my parents in a long time. I'm not tight with people. I was, I was, you know, I never wanted to come back to the East Coast, which was home. Like, I had my own healing to do. And so I set out on this idea that I wanted to try to heal my life. I wanted to go on an adventure. I wanted to use this magic window to the highest degree I could. And I wanted to make it all public so that anybody following along for the year could be inspired to do the same thing. So maybe they didn't have 12 months of their lives where they could walk away from their kids Maybe they didn't have a paycheck that was going to come in for 12 months without them having to work. But maybe they could pick up the phone and call someone that they owed an apology to and do it. Maybe they could go back to school. Maybe they could pick up the guitar. Maybe they could start painting again. Maybe they could take up jujitsu or surfing or whatever it was that, that thing that we all have on the back shelf, that, that someday thing, right? Maybe they could get to that someday thing or that someday person, or that someday conversation. And if I could inspire them to do that by just blindly throwing myself at at all of the above activities, um, then that period of time would also be worth it. Like I wanted to be in service. I wanted to help people. I wanted people to hear my story and go, man, if this guy can volunteer in hospice, sit in a dark room for a month, apologize to his ex-girlfriend, Ask another ex-girlfriend what was the hardest part about dating him. Um, live in the woods for a month with a survival school. Uh, you, you know, you name it. Then I can pick up the guitar, 
or I can learn Spanish, or I can call my dad and say, I love you. I'm sorry. I was kind of a dick when I was 13, right? Like I wanted it to be so big that people had no excuse for their own, their own lack of uh, wanting to touch difficulty or wanting to be this uncomfortable. Yeah, man. Um, first of all, thank, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, like, yeah, that was kind of a mouthful. That was that's heavy. Um, but yeah. you, you've obviously done a lot of thinking about it as well, and you and you tell that really, really eloquently. Um, thank you. And I think it's it's very cool as well as that. Hey, you wanted to find out about yourself and kind of learn more about yourself and and kind of fi- figure things out, but also you. It's really, really cool as well that you saw that, hey, while I'm doing this, this, this might be of service to other people. Um, Absolutely. Which is, which is wicked. When you were kind of coming up with the stuff that you were doing for the year, how did you, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about some of that in a little bit, but how did you kind sure. of pick the things that you, that you did that you were like, oh man, I, I'd love to go and do this, right? Or maybe I, I wouldn't love it, but this is something that I really need to go and do. Yeah, I, um, that's a great question. I did a lot of meditating, and I don't want to sound, make this sound fluffy, but like I put 12 blank calendar months up on a wall, and I started really diving into that question of what would I actually do if I was going to be dead January 1st of the next year? You know, and I had to like let that question work its way down into my belly. Because I, I talk to people and, the, you know, like guys would be like, oh, I'd go to Thailand and fuck hookers for three months. I was like, all right, then what would you do? You know, or everyone was like, oh, I'd travel. Like, okay, but then what would you do? Like it, the question wasn't what would you do with your time? It was what do you need to do so that you will be at peace? Which is a, a motherfucker of a question because it's going to be a lot of hard stuff. Right. It's super easy to go to Thailand for three months and fuck hookers and then go surfing for six months and then do this and do that. But I wanted to get into the meat of it. So, you know, I literally just sat there with my eyes closed for hours and and had a white bar, nailed a whiteboard into my shitty apartment wall. And anything that came up, I wrote down. And the very first thing that popped into my head was I'm going to volunteer in hospice. I was like, holy shit, I've never done that before. I've never worked with dying people. Like, what am I, where did that come from? And, and where am I going to do it? I'm going to do it in New Mexico, US. I was like, I've never been to New Mexico. I don't know anybody in New Mexico. Like, where the hell did that come from? Just wrote it down. Uh, I knew immediately there was a woman in my life that I, I wrote a whole piece on forgiveness about that I hadn't been in touch with for almost a half decade. who was a very good friend of mine. Someone that I had dated, you know, years and years before, and we had a really messy exit. And I was like, man, I owe her an apology. I, I was a dick back then. I, if I were to die at the end of the year without, like, putting my fucking ego to the side and saying, I'm so sorry. Uh, you don't have to forgive me, but I, I would love it if you would. Like, her name, bam, on the list. And then there was also some bucket list stuff, Chris. Like, I did the... Um, you know, the month long survival course, like I wanted to be, I don't know if you guys know who Davy Crockett is, Yeah. but yeah. like, you know, I wanted to be like, that was a, the little kid inside of me was like, I want to go play in the woods for a month. I've always wanted to do one of those courses, you know, it was like, cool, we're doing it. I can do it. 
um, the biggie, you know, the, the time in the dark was I was at a men's retreat and uh, a very intense men's group, which was like ripping our guts open and, and talking about the most painful memories we had. And a man there said, yeah, I've spent 180 days in complete darkness. And my antenna was like, boing, like I pulled him aside afterwards. Like, I'm sorry, what did you just say? And he had done it over the course of, you know, 49 days, 49 days, 30 days, 20 days, et cetera. And he told me, he's like, this is an experience of, it's virtually like dying on earth. I thought, holy shit, I have to do that. I have to do that because one, I am now like goosebumps and terrified and I may shit myself a little bit, you know, hearing that conversation and imagining it. And so it was, it seems so challenging and difficult and awful. And I thought, okay, there's nothing worse than that. And that is the greatest challenge to me, who is an athlete, me who likes to surf and likes the sunlight and likes to fight and likes to wrestle and do all this stuff. I'm going to sit alone in a room by myself with no light. Oh, holy fuck. Okay. All right. Signed up for that. You know, and then things evolved as, as I went along too. like things popped up, you know, I found ayahuasca in Guatemala. It's like, yeah, I'm going to do ayahuasca a couple of times. I want to just see what this is like. I really gave myself, this is something big for people listening. I just gave myself permission. Like something popped up and I could do it. And the time was there and it wasn't going to hurt anybody. It was like zero fucks living. Like, oh yeah, sure. I'm going to take a dance class. Oh my God. It's terrifying. But like, fuck it. I'm going to do it. You know, like I just gave myself kind of a blank check, Chris. I'm like, do whatever. Do whatever while you can still do it. That's awesome, man. And uh, I, I like that. Zero fucks living. Uh, that, might yeah. be the, uh, that might be the title of the podcast, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Perfect. But I want to um, I want to go back into into having a little bit of a chat about a couple of those things that that you went sure. through. So I think that the first one for me is the is the hospice. Um, okay. And for for those people that that aren't familiar with with what a hospice is, it's kind of a it's almost a, a transition place for people who well in New Zealand anyway who sort of know that hey that they're going to they're going to pass away sort of mm-hmm. imminently um this is this is where they go for for that support and kind of the, those final stages i'm assuming yeah. that it's the, the same in in new mexico as well yeah it's uh it can be either at a facility or at home so for us uh hospice is basically a diagnosis of less than 6 months to live with no, you know, and like no measures for resuscitation or, you know, everybody has a DNR. So if you fall, you're done. If you like, they're not going to try to bring you back. Mm -hmm. Uh, People live longer than the six months and people die in a day. So it's basically, and there's a volunteer, there's two services. There's a group of professionals whose job is to make sure that this human, uh, their final chapter is comfortable. Because it doesn't matter at this point, they're going to die. So you can you can help them out, and then a group of volunteers that would go and just be um, be in the room, who would just read books, play cards, listen to stories, hold hands, um, just be company. Right? The hospice in the U.S. 
the, their motto per se is um, no one should die in pain and no one should die alone unless that's their choice. Yeah. Which is just, just this amazing, like beautiful way of looking at, at life. Like, yeah, like let's just make that international law. Right. If we can do it. Yeah. Uh, we could do a lot worse than that. Eh? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so Trevor, you were, you were one of the volunteers that, that went and worked in the, in the hospitals. Oh, sorry. In the hospice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously kind of a lot of, a lot of working with people that are, are in their last days. Um, and you would have heard some, some pretty, uh, impressive stories. You probably would have heard some pretty, um, mm -hmm. pretty sad stories Yeah. as well. Um, I mean, were there, were there any kind of common themes with, with what people would talk to you about while you were there? You know, Chris, that's, that's a great question. Um, it was such an array. Like it was such a wide net of, you know, some people were so terrified. They just wanted to pretend like it wasn't happening. And some people were so curious that they would almost be childlike. I remember one guy telling me that the rumor going around the nursing home was that when you pass, you get to go to heaven and be half of the age that you died at. So he was 93. And so he was going to be 46 and a half in heaven. And he was, you know, when he heard this rumor, he was, he was really excited about it. And it makes no logical sense like that. I don't know where the, where that, whoever started that rumor where it came from, but it's you can imagine being, but yeah, you can be imagined. Like I thought back to being at like camp and like, you know, rumor gets loose at summer camp and then soon everybody believes it. And that's, you know, that was the lightness of being there. Uh, it was, it was a, it was such a mind fuck. And yet like I probably learned more about myself, about holding space, about being present about um humanity and and love and kindness from that experience than, than anything else i did that year um hmm. i was gonna i was gonna ask you actually i mean what what did you learn about humanity in in that uh in that period of time because i mean it's such a it'd be such a kind of a brutal learning curve with it yeah um it was the start of understanding the reverence of life and meaning my very first day on the job, Chris, like I'm shit scared and I've fought in a fucking cage before and I'm terrified walking into this building because I have no idea what I'm going to see, hear, smell, experience. Um, and walking in is like, it's like walking into, and pardon this expression, like a zoo. There are people in wheelchairs scattered all over the lobby of this building. Some are screaming, some are crying, some are asking me to help them escape. Uh, some are happier than pigs and shit. Like it's just this massive conglomerate of experience, but every single one of them is going to die from the guy who's there who's homeless to the guy who's there who is an ex general. And I went and saw my very first patient. I didn't really know what to think. I walked in. Man was lying there on his bed with his eyes closed. Um, he opened them when I came in. I introduced myself and said, uh, I'm here, you know, just to be with you. Is there anything you'd like me to do? Would you like to read? Would you like me to tell you a story? Do you, whatever. 
And he just said, you know, I'm, I'm really tired. I'm, I wouldn't mind if you just sat here with me. And, um, oh, fuck. Uh, I put my hand on his shoulder and I sat there for like 15 minutes with him and just kind of got the feeling that like enough's enough, you know, that's, that's all he needed. And, uh, I told him I would be back the next day and, and I would see him again the next morning. And, um, when I woke up the next morning, I had a text message from my, the woman who was kind of in charge of me. And she said, you know, he, he passed last night. Uh, he's no longer your patient. I thought, fuck, that's quick. You know, like the guy was talking yesterday. He, we, we, we interacted like this isn't what I thought death was going to be. I thought it would be this long drawn out thing. And for some people it is, but, um, that was the reverence of life, man. It's like, it's so fucking sacred. It's so special and it can go so fast that, you know, one of the big lessons I took from the year was like, live it up. Don't go out partying and blow all your money and be irresponsible, but be so present because that is what it's going to come down to at the end. You're just going to want the simplicity. You're just going to want to be there for the moments. You're just going to want to be there for those people. Um, so I mean, it was one of, of, of many massive lessons. The other was that, you know, from him, especially that all he wanted was me in the room. That was it. That was, you know, the sum total of my experience and knowledge and skill set and you know, how fucking awesome I thought I was. He just wanted me to sit there. And that was the greatest gift I could give to that man. In literally the last 12 hours of his life was me a human to sit next to him a human and me to put my hand on his shoulder. And when I was going through, you know, I was going through hell. Like I'd lost my wife. I've lost my future family. I've lost everything I thought I wanted. I feel like a piece of shit. I feel useless, right? Like I don't feel like a man in the world. I don't feel like I'm the warrior I want to be. And, and for this guy, all I needed to do was be present. All I needed to do was leave my phone in the car and sit there with him. I didn't daydream. I just sat there, sat there and was present, you know? So like, again, what a gift to, to think this is when we, when we strip away all the bullshit, just being present for another human being can, can radically change their experience. And then the, the, you know, the little asterisk to that is, and it can go like that. So don't waste any more fucking time. Mm. Yeah. That's a, that's a massive lesson from it as well. And I think, Ooh. I mean, we're, we're super guilty really often of, of not being present because we yeah. think, ah, oh, yeah, that's, I'll have another chance with this. This is, yeah. this is yeah. fine. But obviously that, that experience that you went through there with it is just it really brings brings that home the the importance of being being present in in every interaction even if it is just being there with and being there for someone yeah yeah that was it was such a slap in the face to wake up and hear oh he's dead and this is how i remember my hospice coordinator saying like and this is how things go so get used to it you know, she was sweeter than that, but that was really yeah. the message of like, this is the world that you're now in. 
Uh, and I took it as this is actually the world I've lived in my entire life. I just haven't known it because friends die. People pass. People get sick. People's lives change in an instant. One day you wake up and your wife leaves. One day you wake up and you're no longer having a kid. Right. So, so not only get after it, but sit there, turn your phone off, turn the distractions off, put the beer down and sit and be present and be so thankful for the time you do have. Mm. Yeah. And I think like in this day and age, often a lot of that hard stuff happens behind closed doors and we're, Mm -hmm. we're kind of not aware of it. We don't, we don't talk about it. We don't see it nearly as much as kind of we, we used to throughout history and, I think that that sometimes yeah gives us kind of that that false I don't know if it's a false sense of security but it's a kind of a, a false um idea of what what life and what what suffering is actually like yeah yeah man it it was it was sobering chris because that nursing home people are screaming around the clock there's, I've watched women fight in wheelchairs, like fist fight each other. Like it was, it was hell on earth to walk into that place. And, and that's not even hell on earth. And that's where we're all headed. No matter what, <clears throat> that's, you know, that's, we're, we're all going to death. No matter what mistakes you make now, you're going to die. Mm. No matter how awesome you are now, you're going to die. So let that be freeing as opposed to a weight on you. Like that was death is freedom. And and for a lot of these guys, man, this was another huge lesson. They were so excited to die. They wanted to die. They would wake up upset that they were awake because they were in pain. They were in this room. They were in this shitty place. Their friends had passed. Their spouses had passed. Their kids don't see them. Or even if they did, they just were like, I've had enough. And how much, how many, how many people listening, even you and I, don't make some decision because we're scared of death on some level, right? It's way, way back, way, 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 way back in the background, but it's there. That like, oh wow, I just turned forty-one. Oh, I'm just halfway. Fuck, <laughs> I'm not twenty anymore. And then to sit with someone who's like, I hope tomorrow's the day. Or like, you know, it slide me twenty. One guy was hilarious. He was just a pure comedian. Uh, I was like, I'm going to the dentist tomorrow. Can you, can you, if I give you 20 bucks, can you have them off me with the, like, <laughs> you know, with the laughing gas or whatever? And I was like, Jesus Christ, I think, you know, take your money. Um, but like, you know, and he was like, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I've had it. I'm 93. Like none of my shit works anymore. My back hurts. My, I can't stand. I have to push a button to go to the bathroom. Like I'm eating canned peas and watching black and white TV. Like get me out of here. You know, and to think, okay, someday I may be him. So I'm going surfing today. I'm going to call, if someone's upset with me, I'm going to call and apologize. If I'm, if I love someone, they're going to know it. I'm going to follow my truth. If this doesn't make sense to me, I'm not going to do it. This doesn't feel right to me and it's not going to hurt anybody to walk away from it. I'm walking away from it. Period. Yeah. Because I'm not going to sit in that same damn chair and look back and go, man, I wasted five years in that cubicle. Because I was afraid that I wouldn't have a pension when I got out. I was afraid that my 401k wouldn't be where it was when I got out. I was afraid that you know society would look down on me 
because at 41, I walked out of my life and, and went on an adventure. Mm. Very true, man. Um, can we have a bit of a talk about the, uh, about the time in the dark as well? So was it, it was sure. 28 days that you were in yeah, there was, for? Yeah. Yeah. So this is in a, um, I went to Guatemala. I found a place, an ashram that had what was called a dark retreat. And it was, uh, if you think of, uh, you guys know Pac-Man, remember yeah. the, yeah, the yeah. video game? So think of like a complete circle. And then if you put the Pac-Man on top of it, the open mouth would be a toilet and a shower and then above that a loft. And then it would be like uh, that room was like a dome, um, almost like a, it looked like a breast or like a nipple, you know, it like came to a point at the top. And I was maybe 12 feet wide so I could touch something everywhere I went. And this was a concrete room that literally had no light ever. And no, my eyes did not adjust, period. I could not see any uh, my hand a micrometer in front of my face for the entire month. It was a wild experience. It was awful. Like if you think, uh, you know, I walked in there like adrenalized and like, oh man, this is going to be crazy. This is going to be amazing. And then, you know, three, four hours in, you go, oh, I went like, oh, wow, there's nothing to do in here. There's literally nothing to do. I can't. I can't read, can't listen to music. Sure, there's food that comes in three times a day. I can't see it. There's nothing to do. There's no furniture, so I'm on concrete. I have a little meditation stool. That's it. It's very sobering <laughs> to realize, like, oh, wow, that was day one. I've got 27 more of those. And then to let the, uh, you know, so that's like dealing with just the reality of the logistics and uh, like, now I have to deal with myself. Okay. What's going to come up out of me that's been buried? What happens to the human brain? What happens to my brain? What happens to my psyche when you take every single distraction possible away? Right? Like you and I, how many times have you checked your phone today? How many times have you seen something? How many times have you touched your wife? How many times have you had a conversation with another human? How many times have you written something down? You have so much stimuli all day or stimulus all day, every moment from the moment your eyes open in the morning to the moment they close at night. If we take all of that away, with the exception of touch, what's left? And, and what will your brain do? Mm, that's and that a, was, yeah. It's scary almost to, to, to think about that, mate. Yeah, people, when I tell them, freak out. It's like, oh my God, I'd go crazy in, in, the, in the first 24 hours. And the, the asterisk, Chris, I didn't know until I got out that the people that ran the ashram, you know, that did this whole thing, this was their gig, were like, yeah, we don't usually let people go for more than three days on their first time because they go crazy. I was like, what <laughs> fuck did you just say to me? And they said, yeah, we were waiting to meet you and see what you were like. And we thought that you'd be fine. And so, yeah, people do. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's very, it's just a sobering idea of, okay, what are you going to do with yourself? Right. And what happens if something comes up that's hard for you? Cause believe me, brother, 
There, you haven't hidden anything. You haven't buried anything deep enough that darkness won't pull it out. And then when you have to deal with that, there's nowhere to go afterwards. There's no one to hug you. You can't, you know, shut that thought off by putting the TV on or putting Facebook on or, you know, cruising the internet or watching YouTube videos. You're stuck with it. And, uh, one of the other harder aspects that was brutal was after about the sixth or seventh day, I stopped sleeping. So I'd maybe sleep for like an hour like after dinner and then be awake all night and then maybe fall asleep an hour before the breakfast bell would be rung. And uh, so I was literally like living two days in a day with nothing to do but meditate, think, you know, scream, try to punch holes in the wall, cry, fall apart, watch mental movies, see hallucinations, um, you name it. Man, like when, when things were, were coming up for you, mm -hmm. like when you, when that stuff that you, you tried to bury was, was mm -hmm. coming up for you, like how did you, I mean, how did you deal with it at the start? And then also, how did you, how did you deal with it at the end? Did that kind of evolve as you'd spent time in there? It really was like a crescendo, you know, like, uh, on the eighth day for like day one through seven, I just sort of worked out, did pushups and squats and sit-ups and ate and meditated. I was like, Oh, this is really cool. It's just kind of boring, you know, like, but nothing really is happening. Um, and then I fell apart on the eighth day and it was like eight through maybe 15, 16 were this like drop into hell where I was uncontrollably like weeping and sobbing on the floor and, and just falling apart. And, and I had given myself permission to fall apart. So, you know, when things come up, it's like, you just got to let them come up. You got to think about them. You got to feel them. It was like I had to relive trauma. I had to relive, you know, the night at the hospital with my ex-wife. I had to relive the day she left over and over and over and over and over until it stopped coming up. It was complete surrender. It's like, all right, you know, beat the shit out of me today. I, I'm, uh, there's nothing I can do about it but leave. And I've made the commitment that I'm not going to leave. And so, it was this ride, like an emotional roller coaster of just getting pummeled and then also having some, some pe like times of peace, like a massive emotional, like two or three days of bawling. And then a day where I was like, oh, okay, I can catch my breath. You know, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And then boom, right back down the slide again. Um, so things like just stopped coming up. And I mean, I stopped seeing the movies in my head of those experiences. I stopped having the arguments with people who have died. It just it, like it moved its way through. I, don't, I guess that's the best way to explain it. It's like, you know, it just moved its way through. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, you know, by the end, I think I probably spent a week too long in there because by the last week I was so annihilated <clears throat> from all of the emotion, from not sleeping, from eating vegan food, um, from just the experience itself, from all of it, that like I was in a really bad place and uh, I'm grateful for it now. But a lot of the experience of the last week, I thought I might be dead. I thought maybe this is 
uh, maybe they, you know, they fucked up and, and I've, I've died and, and I'm never coming out of here. And I'd like touch my own body and be like, well, maybe this is just all a hallucination. Like I was going a little nuts, you know? Um, and so stuff stopped coming up, but I was in such a low point. It didn't matter. It was like a, a wind could have knocked me over at that point. It was just so beaten. Uh, yeah. And, and that's how I dealt with it at the end. It was just kind of like, I give up, take me, you know, like if I die, I die. I don't care if they come and open the store. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Um, but then also the flip side of that too, and I want to make sure this is emphasized is the immense freedom in thinking that because part of my brain too, <clears throat> was like, you know, alcoholics having moments of clarity and be like, no, I'm not dead. I'm doing this on purpose. This is what it's like. Um, this is death giving me freedom again. Same thing as hospice. If this experience, like the world is going to go on without me, at some point, this is what it's going to be like. I'm going to be in a dark hole in the ground and everybody's going to be doing their shit. This is death. Okay. So when I get out, that means I can do all the things that I want to do. I can at least try. You know, I can go for my goals. I can, I can, I can push. I can, you know, really get after something. I can try to make a big change in the world while I'm still here. Because I have experienced this thing and I know the freedom from it, despite how awful it feels in the moment. If that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Okay. And I think, I mean, obviously the, the so very different experiences, the, the, the time in the, in the room, but also um, the time in the hospice as well. But kind of the message and the learnings that you took from them sound, sound really, really similar um, yeah. In terms of kind of how it's how it's shaped your life from that. I mean, you've you're dealing with yourself and you're dealing with kind of the internal, a lot of the internal stuff when you're when you're in the room, and when you're in the hospice, you're understanding humanity and understanding kind of the the life process, um, yeah. in, in more depth. But the the answers to your to your questions come uh, are the same ones that come up from from both of those. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know how to make this not sound morbid, man. And I want you guys, I'm like, I'm a super happy guy. You know, like, I, I love ice cream. I love surfing. Like, I love women. I'm a really, really happy guy who also says, like, death is freedom. And it's going to be freedom. So live your goddamn life. Like, live awesome. Live happy. Go to the movies. Kiss your girl. You know, start the blog. Ask that guy out. Like, go on, the, go on that trip. Why? Because this thing's coming. And when it comes, you can't do the shit anymore. I don't know how to make that not sound like like pathological and super duper dark. Like, oh, wow, he's a Satanist. No, I'm not. I'm like a really happy American guy. <laughs> but those two experiences were so heavy that, you know, everything in life has a duality. It's the divine conundrum. So as dark and depressing and awful as it was, there has to be a light side to that in opposition. And that light side was like, oh, wow, life is so sacred. Life is so beautiful. Yeah, thank, thank you for knocking me this far down. Thank you for letting me experience what it's like to lie in a, in a fetal position on a concrete floor and cry for days. Because when I get out of here, a banana is going to be orgasmic. And two years later, two and a half years, I think I'm at the, actually I'm at about a little over a year since I've come out. Like I still have that view of life of like, man, this, this thing is awesome. 
I am so happy to be alive despite having lost all that stuff. And that's fine. It's fine because I'm going to get it back. Or what it taught me was to feel, to find out who I really was and to be present with myself in my lowest moments and not abandon myself and to be present with other people in their most, their most sacred moments when they are at their most vulnerable. Those two skills, Chris, if I could teach anything in the world, I would teach that. How to hold space for someone who is literally dying. And then how to hold space for yourself when you are literally at your lowest point. Because if you got you and you got them or you got you while you're dealing with them, which we all have to do, then life is, is, is brutally easy. You just breathe through it, right? So uncomfortable, sure. But you know it's going to end. And there's going to be a moment when uncomfortable isn't uncomfortable anymore. It's either going to change or you're going to die. And it's not uncomfortable anymore. So once you swallow that, like on a deep, guttural, you know, spiritual level, then fear, fear is just a fucking liar. It's just a liar. It doesn't even exist doesn't mean you're not going to get tummy aches and like I'm terrified of heights like you know pee myself terrified doesn't mean I'm going to walk around on top of the Grand Canyon but I know that like the fear of failure fear of rejection fear of pain um is is just a creation in my own head and everybody else's yeah yeah very true man very very true Trevor, I mean, we've talked a lot about um, <laughs> a, a lot about the stuff that you've you've done and the stuff that you've you've been through. What's mm-hmm. the stuff that you're doing now besides uh, being a professional squatter? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for asking. Yeah, uh, so I just wrote a book. Like I've I've transitioned from you know having this amazing experience, and then throughout the course of the year. Chris, uh, because I was writing about it publicly, I started having all these people who were going through divorces reach out to me and say like, yeah, I'm in the shit of this too. Like, I feel like I'm dying too. I, you seem to be doing okay. Or actually you seem to be doing really well despite having this awful thing happen. What do I do? I thought, okay, I don't, I never, ever, 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 ever thought I would be helping people through their divorces. But, um, I decided to write a book about it of this is my experience. This is what I went through. This is how I got through it. This is how I think you could get through it. And then have people now reach out for me to me all over the world. It's like, Hey, I want to, I want to know how do I use the pain of my divorce or my breakup or my heartache or even my loss? You know, it's, it's more centered around relationship, but I have people who are like, my spouse died. What do I do? And I'm not a grief counselor. I don't say like, I, this is how you get through the nights when you want to stick a bullet in your mouth or a gun in your mouth. This is what you do when you wake up and you decide you want to use that pain. And so now I'm, I'm, you know, working a lot online and uh, holding like uh, six week courses and mastermind courses where getting, getting groups of people together online who are going through the same thing and, and saying, I'll facilitate. Here's what, here's what you want. You want some honesty. Here's honesty. Here's what I went through, especially men. You know what, dudes? This is going to fucking suck. Let's just be, let someone be honest about how awful it is. I cried on my bathroom floor for nine and a half months every single night after my wife left. Bam. 
And I also fought in a cage. So if anybody wants to call me a pussy, throw on a mouthpiece and a pair of gloves and we'll get after it. But that's the truth, right? So I want to, I'm helping people transition right now out of their relationships or into the next stage of their relationship. And uh, in the back of my head is a book about that whole year of travel. I think I needed to write the one about divorce first, kind of for myself. Just like a, it's a 90 day guide called Today I Rise. It's just like you got, you wake up tomorrow morning and the missus is gone. Boom. Here's what you do on day one. Boom. Here's what you do on day two. Boom. Here's a funny story about me shitting in bed when I had food poisoning and I didn't think it could ever get as worse as it did. But let's just be, you know, here's someone being honest, um, which, which seems to be a rarity. You know, like you said, we're isolated from death, but, uh, my divorce was so lonely, Chris. Like no one would talk to me about it. No one would share what they went through. I was like, where are, what do I do? Someone just be honest with me. Um, so I wanted to be that voice of honesty and, and, uh, inspiration for people who are, you know, heartache sucks. It's like the, it's the worst pain I've known and it's international and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So, um, that's what I'm doing now. And, and I'm slowly piecing my physical life back together. You know, I'm looking for a place to live. I've started dating again. I'm getting out into the world. I'm, I'm making money again. I'm um, like rebuilding the physical that that went away. Awesome, man! If people want to, um, if people want to check out, check you out, and check out the stuff you're doing, where should they sure. go? How can they? How can they do that? And how can they? How can they find your book? So my book is on Amazon. Uh, it's Kindle right now, but it's going, by the time this podcast goes up, it'll also be a hard, uh, soft cover book. Oh, wicked. Um, to, to, today I rise. Uh, my website is one day stronger.com. And that's kind of the mantra that I adopted. And I teach people like, no matter what happens to you at the end of that day, if you wake up the next morning, you're one day stronger. So take the pain, take the hurt, take whatever God and your ex or life is throwing at you give a little wink to it and be like, thank you very much. Tomorrow I'll be one day stronger. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Traver Bohm, T-R-A-V-E-R-B-O-E-H-M. I kind of use Instagram like a blog now as opposed to doing a traditional blog. And I throw workouts up there, uh, throw just inspirational stories, stuff I'm going through, conversations I have um, around relationship, around masculine, feminine dynamics, around consciousness, around meditation, um, just around like trying to wake people up, you know, like I wish I could shake a lot of people, Chris, and say like, you can do it. Whatever this thing is that you want to do, trust me, you can do it. Yeah, man. And you don't have to lose everything before you give yourself permission to do it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, um, Trevor, I've got a, I've got a few more questions for you that I like sure. to ask everyone towards, uh, sure, towards sure. the end of the chat. The first one is, uh, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it? Whew. Um, I very recently ended another relationship that was, it was short. Um, someone that I really, really liked, but our relationship dynamic wasn't good. And I fought this, Chris, because I was like, man, I really want to have someone in my life again. And I really like this girl but uh, or this woman, but um, I don't feel good around her a lot. And I had kind of made the decision in the past, or I had made the very clear decision that <clears throat> I wouldn't get in a relationship that wasn't awesome. 
That doesn't mean there won't be ups and downs and challenges, but like that overall wasn't serving me and this high standard that I hold. And uh, how did I get through it? I, I kind of applied everything that we've talked about. I said, you know, like one, I'm going to honor my standard. I'm going to honor the decisions I made in that dark room. I'm going to make, I'm going to honor the decisions of how I live my life as a man. And um, I'm going to actually just dial the phone right now and call. And, and years ago, I would have one stayed in the relationship for, for years too long. And just be like, it's okay. I don't have my own needs. We'll just, they don't need to be met. That's fine. Um, just don't leave me. So I, I want to cross that bridge or I would have spent like two weeks dialing her number and then putting the phone down. Like today's not good. I can't, I can't, it's raining out. I can't, I can't make this phone call. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I just did it. So I think that's, you know, I just did it and said, here's the deal, man. This conversation is going to be shitty and uncomfortable and hard, whether you do it today or you do it two weeks from now. So let's get it over with and get on with things. Just do it. Yeah. And I did. Sucks, awesome. but I did. Thank you. Good work, man. Good work. Um, Trevor, what is the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you? Mm. You know, it may sound odd to people listening, Chris, but uh, I'm going to re- I am rebuilding my physical life. So it's uncomfortable because one, everything when everything evaporated or sort of fell apart, I had the freedom of being like, well, I'll just I'll just keep traveling. I'll just keep moving. I never have to be in the same place twice. I never have to risk attachment. I never have to fall in love with a place again and then wake up one day and think maybe I can't live here anymore or maybe this isn't the right place for me anymore. And so there's a, there's a freedom and an irresponsibility in not making decisions. And uh, I'm starting to make decisions that limit possibility. It's like, yeah, I need to, I need to, I need to live somewhere. So I'm going to find that place and I'm going to live there. And, you know, again, that may sound odd to people, but um, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to commit to somewhere, one, after two and a half years of just like pure roaming, and two, the last time I found the place where I was going to live forever, I didn't end up living there. And so I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to keep following these same principles of saying, you know, my gut is my God now. I listen to my gut over anything else in the world. And my gut, when it's happy somewhere, I know I'm going to be fine there. And I know also that because I listened to my gut and I filled in who I am, I can literally live anywhere in the world and be happy. So it's not as important. So I'm going to find a great community, good people, great activities, outdoor life, consciousness, and I'm going to settle down there. Cool, man. That sounds, that sounds awesome. And it will be, it will be a challenge after kind of spending two and a half years of, of not being in one place. Um, yeah, but I'm sure yeah, that sure. Uh, I mean the, the <clears throat> insight that you've gained from the time doing doing this, all of this stuff, um, I think will stand you in really really good stead for making those decisions. Um, Thank you. I do too. You, yeah, if you ever fancy uh, being in New Zealand as part of your professional squatting <laughs> uh, career, uh, <laughs> you've you've got a bed over here, mate. Thanks, brother. <laughs> um, 
you know, and I come knocking you. <laughs> <laughs> like, who's this guy actually, again? <laughs> you guys are the people that when they say that, you actually mean that we are welcome. It's the Americans. Yeah, yeah. Are like, yeah, come anytime. Like, please don't fucking come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Um, I may take you up on that. Good, good. I hope, I hope you do. Um, Trevor, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot around this already, but do you have any other kind of practical tips for people when they're approaching uncomfortable situations? Yeah, you know, I do. And, um, I, I know Tim Ferriss did a whole, uh, a whole Ted talk on like looking at your fear. Mm. But one, one thing I used to do with my best friend is we would go out and say, okay, what is the absolute worst case scenario? Like worst case scenario. Like I remember he, my, my best friend's a web designer and he wanted to leave a big company and go out on his own. And he was terrified of it. We're like, all right, let's go worst case, worst case, worst case. You go out on your own. You don't make any money. You have to move back in with your parents or move in with me and live on my couch for six months, which, wait a minute, that sounds, that's, that's actually pretty awesome. Um, okay, let's go even worse, worst case. Like all of a sudden we stop being friends and you're living on the street. You're going to be in a homeless shelter. Okay. Like is, can you, can you get through that? Like, granted, it's not going to be ideal, but like, can you, you think, would that kill you? And he'd be like, no, it wouldn't kill me. Like, it would suck for a couple of months. Like, yeah, would it be motivational and, and inspirational? Would you get off your ass and get moving? He'd be like, yeah, absolutely. And so once people have done that, like, I really like to ask the question again, as morbid as it is, will I die from this? If not, do it. Right? Or am I going to hurt a bunch of people? I really want to emphasize, like, please don't walk out on your kids and your wives and your spouses and, and et cetera. But, you know, if you have something hard to do, if it's not going to kill you, do it. And tell yourself, it's not going to get easier by waiting. There is, like, in that moment, Chris, like, when you're dialing that phone, that is going to be uncomfortable. It's like an archetypal pattern around discomfort. And that archetypal pattern exists whether you do it right now or you do it two years from now. But the difference is if you do it right now, you get to let it go. Or you get to dive into that new thing and new doors open up and new experiences and, and amazement can happen. But if you do nothing, you just you you carry the that burden with you or that weight of and the disappointment of not doing it all the way, or the the, the stress of like shit, I still have to. Right? Like it's amazing to move fast and make decisions quick. And yeah. So yeah, I'll fuck it. Even if I fail, fuck it. I tried. And and there is no such thing as failure. So if you fail, you're going to get new information, right? So it's not like you'll never be in the same po same place if you take action. You'll get new stimulus that you can then react to, and and make new decisions from. So I'm a massive fan of take action, take action, take action, take action. Just don't walk out on your wife and kids. <laughs> yeah. Just don't do, don't do that. Two great bits of advice there, mate. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I've, got, uh, I've got one more question for you, man. Sure. Um, but before I ask it, I want, I want to say thanks again for, for taking the time to, to sit down and have a, have a chat with me about this stuff and, and tell your story. Um, but also thank you so much as well for, um, for your openness to share the stuff that you've been going through and the stuff that you've 
been learning about yourself and obviously you've you've learned a heap along the way but you could have you could have kept this to all to yourself and and just kind of used it as a um as a learning experience for you and no one would yeah. have begrudged you for for doing that but um thank, thank you, you so much for for opening up to the world about it eh? it's it's very cool and um i hope i hope people kind of take take your example and, and run with it as well Thank you. I appreciate the acknowledgement. I really do. Cool. No worries, man. Um, final question for you. Do you mm-hmm. have any challenges to leave me and the listeners with this week? Yeah. What's one thing you can do today? Like right now, if you are listening to the, the like, as soon as this podcast is over, what's one thing that in the next half hour, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes that you have been putting off that you know, literally, there's no time frame around it. Like, I, I did this when I apologized to my friend Alyssa, when I asked her for forgiveness. I tell that story to everybody and say, is there anybody in your life who right now you could call and go, you know what, man, or you know what, person, I kind of fucked up a while ago. I'm really sorry. And there's been no one, Chris, who hasn't come back and be like, yeah, I, I sort of, yeah, I got that. I know who you're talking about. I know I've got that person. And then I'll quickly slide my phone across the table and be like, let's call him right here, right now. And everybody freaks out. <laughs> like, no, no, today's not the right day. No, no, you know, maybe they're busy. Maybe, maybe it's raining. It's like, nope, make that call right now. Right now. It's so cliche, right? Everyone says, like, call your mother, call your father. Call someone and tell them that you love them. Call someone and ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness for you. If if every single listener did that in the next 20 minutes, I could die tonight a happy man. Because I know the ripple effect that would have on their lives. So yeah, that's my challenge to everybody listening to this. Awesome. Now let's make it specific. Call someone and and ask for forgiveness. And if you have no one, uh, look a little deeper. Cool. That is that is a great challenge uh, to leave us with, Trevor. Bond. People are going to hate me. <laughs> yeah, they, they might. They might. I'll be I'll be really interested to to hear people's feedback on that one. Actually, <laughs> yeah, it'd be me too. Uh, it'd be great. Hey, get in get in t- uh, contact with me and Trevor and uh, tell us yeah, how it, how it goes. Please. But uh, Trevor, thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. Thank you, brother. I mean it. There you have it, guys. I hope you enjoy the conversation that I had with Traver there. Um, he's, a, he's a pretty amazing guy who's done some pretty amazing things. Uh, and his story is pretty intense as well. Like there is, There's a lot of full-on stuff in there. Um, and he doesn't expect you, and I don't expect you to kind of uh, go out and, and follow follow what he's done over the year. And uh, But if you wanted to, that would be, that'd be amazing. Uh, but hopefully it does inspire you to get out and do something uh, that you've been scared of for a while, something that that is a little bit tough for you to do uh, after hearing all of his stories and the stuff that he's gone through. Now, with the challenge that he set, um, he set it for me as well as for as for you guys. So I, I spent a little bit of time thinking um, about people that I needed to apologize to uh, and in in my early twenties, as as we discussed, um, I, I was a little bit of a dick at times, um, and there are a few people that uh, 
had to put up with some uh, some not great behaviour that I was exhibiting. Um, so I reached out to them and I, I apologised to some of them uh, over the course of the of the last week, um, and it was a reasonably confronting experience for myself to to think about all that dumb shit that I had done um, and to kind of go back and, and put myself in that situation and sort of look at myself from the, from the outside and just kind of think, man, what were you, what were you thinking at that time? That was just, that wasn't, wasn't ideal. Um, so it was, it was tough and it was uncomfortable for me to go back and, and kind of think through that stuff. Um, but it's also kind of made me thankful that I don't make those stupid decisions anymore and I don't hold that worldview that I did hold at that time that kind of caused me to, to make those, those stupid decisions. Um, and yeah, for the, for the people that were around me that, that did put up with the, um, put up with the shit that I, I put on them, um, I wanted to, I wanted to apologize to them. So I've got in touch with, with some of them. Um, if you're listening and, uh, and I haven't got in touch with you yet, then I'm, I'm sorry for you, to you as well for, for putting you through that stuff. Um, and it's been a, it's been an interesting experience asking for forgiveness. It was super, super scary picking up the phone to call because you don't know what response you're going to get um but thankfully everyone that i talked to was uh reasonably reasonably positive love to hear how you guys went with that uh hit me up on facebook uh, or instagram at uncomfortable is okay or chris desmond nz on twitter uh, or send me an email uncomfortable is okay at gmail.com remember to share the episode out with your mates if you liked it um And thank you guys for getting uncomfortable with Trevor and I today. We'll be back again next week with another great episode.
Love.